Next, this month's special series, Focus on Women's and Men's Health. ReachMD examines new developments in the diagnosis and treatment of gender-specific medical issues. Recently, a mother was granted legal permission to have her single 21-year-old deceased son's sperm harvested and stored for later use. This may address ethical issues about reproductive medicine not previously confronted. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining us today is Dr. Robert Brisky, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Brisky is also Chair of the Ethical Committee of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. There has certainly been debates about the ethics of reproduction derived from the concept of a right to reproduce or to control your own reproduction. But does this apply where one of the prospective parents is deceased? Well, that's certainly a major discussion that we have on our ethics committee at the Society on a regular basis. In general, you know, when when you think about deceased individuals and their rights or their obligations, you know, they seem to be fairly limited in our tradition. People make wills, you know, to guide the disposition of their property and to make their opinions known, you know, to their family, their legal estate. But uh, that's been pretty much the limit of sort of obligations or rights of the deceased in society over the ages. So now we're addressing a new technology that allows the consideration of issues that uh, were never possible in the past. But I think there's still the philosophical conceptualization of, of a deceased individual of having rights or of us having obligations to someone who's deceased, I think has to be strictly limited. Certainly, there have been spouses or girlfriends who, after an in-depth discussion with a significant other whose death is likely in the near future, have had these kinds of discussions. This kind of discussion certainly has great credence and validity. Do you think there's a difference between what has gone on in this kind of situation as opposed to the mother who now has frozen sperm of her 21-year-old son? Well, absolutely, because one of the considerations in this debate is obviously what would the deceased have wanted? And the fact that an individual had an interest or had made efforts to reproduce, to have children while they were alive, doesn't necessarily automatically mean that that person would have an interest or desire to pursue that after their death, because for most people, an important part of having children is raising the children, and that's no longer possible for the deceased. So having that discussion, that serious discussion with their life partner before they pass away, lends credence to the idea that this was really a desire of this individual, that now that they're gone, That reproductive project that they had committed to during life can continue, you know, by the surviving individual. There have been in the last decade over a thousand requests for such a child. And in 1998, the first child was born. I am sure that extensive thought went into that particular birth and subsequent births from that time. Would you agree? Well, one would hope so, because, you know, certainly a consideration is welfare of such a child. And of course, it's very difficult to address in the absence of experience, you know, with a new technology. 
So we try and draw analogies from other circumstances where, you know, certainly there have been children conceived but not born when their father passes away, you know, and there's a certain experience with that kind of circumstance, or even the the situation where single women choose to have children on their own, there's experience with that. But it does seem to be unique a unique situation where the father is deceased before the efforts at conception has occurred, and maybe that does lead to a burden on the individual child. Obviously, the child wouldn't be here if it weren't for the efforts to conceive, so because of the value we place on life and the wonderful experience of having children, we put that in perspective, that the child's alive and hopefully has a loving family to care for them. Yeah, you bring up the point of a loving family. So this is a child whose father is deceased and whose mother is most likely a surrogate, at least as far as I can imagine. So both parents are not really available in the way we think of it, and the child will be raised I assume, by his mother, which brings us to the point of the mother having stated, this is what my son would want. And in the thinking about this, is this really what a surrogate should be thinking? Well, whenever we're making end-of-life decisions, our obligation is to put ourselves in the place of the individual we're making decisions for. So it's an ethical obligation of the decision-maker to think as the person would want But sometimes that's difficult to do when there's perhaps a conflict of interest based on the relationship that the decision-maker has to the individual. So when she says, this is what my son would want, one questions whether this is substituted judgment or is this really something that she herself would want. And then this brings up, would this be a replacement child? And I use that in quotation, but is this a replacement child? And therefore, even we question her decision even more so. Well, that certainly raises concerns, and I think it's very difficult to determine that at the time. You know, there's the urgency of collecting the sperm so that it can still be functional. So some uh, have advocated perhaps deferring the decisions about using the sperm from decisions regarding collecting the sperm, so that certainly there has to be some investigation of interests, motives, as best we can tell, the desire of the deceased person, but perhaps those decisions about using the sperm, we would have time to explore the issues of the replacement child, the grief, perhaps the guilt of the individual that's requesting the collection of the, of the sperm, so that uh, we, those would be addressed more in a more leisurely manner and in more depth. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today To discuss the ethics of posthumous sperm collection is Dr. Robert Briskey, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, Texas. And Dr. Briskey is also Chair of the Ethics Committee on the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. For those of us who don't know this, how much time do we have in order to collect the sperm so that it is viable? Well, I must admit I'm not a urologist. I'm trained in gynecology and reproductive endocrinology, but my understanding is that the first 24 hours are the, give the best uh, yield, although there have been successful collections beyond that 24-hour window. So we have a mother who's grieving who is making this decision. So 24 hours have passed since the sudden loss of a 21-year-old, And you bring up an interesting point. Is that really the time to make decisions that will affect 
a youngster being brought into this world? Well, certainly, most professional organizations who have reflected upon this issue have encouraged or even mandated a waiting period of perhaps one year before any efforts to proceed with posthumous reproduction be pursued. And during that time, it's expected that you know counseling would be provided to the individual making those decisions so that the psychological, the social, ethical issues can be explored in depth. And so you did bring up an interesting point that the request for the collection, and I really hesitate to use the word donation, as we might in other products, that the collection of the gamete be one consideration and then its request for its utilization be a whole different process. Exactly. I think that takes the burden off of the providers of the collection service to feel comfortable that every issue has been explored in in adequate depth. And so you would suggest psychological assessment for all those involved. Yes. Would that also include, in this case, the ex-husband, and the siblings, because they must have issues that the siblings would have to deal with a new sibling or and or niece or nephew, depending on how you looked at it. Yes, I think certainly the, you know, raising the, the issue of the, uh, the ex-husband or the father of the, of the deceased is important also as we're considering in many other areas in reproduction regarding, you know, adoption and, and issues like that. Would there also be issues of custody, inheritance, uh, and even legitimacy to be dealt with? Absolutely. And those are uh, legal issues which the courts would have to deal with. Is there ever a question about abusing the right to bodily integrity of the deceased, in this case, the son? Well, that's a good question. And and again, I'm not an expert on legal protections. My understanding in the state of Texas is that the next of kin can uh, authorize the donation of organs from individuals who have suffered a traumatic accidental death and left no plans for organ donation but uh, perhaps that varies from from state to state or country to country. Now, the difference here is that as opposed to a kidney or a liver, the implication is that a new person will be brought into the world, and that's a much more complex issue to consider. If we look at the child now, how do we deal with the disclosure, as he becomes older, of the events that led to his being born? Well, in general, I think it would be difficult to not disclose. Perhaps the details would be muddy, but the absence of the father would be an issue, and in this case, the absence of a mother also. So in general, for example, the analogy of when a child is born into a marriage through the use of donor sperm, for example, there's experience with the process of disclosure where it can be conveyed to the child that this was a decision that the parents made in a loving manner to reinforce the desirability of the child to the couple. And perhaps the same context could be created for such a child born from deceased individual sperm and a surrogate, but perhaps that would be a more difficult argument to make to the child. I was just thinking that usually a disclosure of a donation of an organ is kept secret unless the donor gives permission. And here we have a deceased donor who we are going to act in disclosing where the donation came from. Do you see some kind of tension that exists, or would this be a, a different kind of situation? Well, with uh, again, with the current experience in reproductive medicine of more open sharing of information between donors and recipients, and surrogates, and it seems like there's a context now for dealing with this, although, again, the uh, ethical and legal issue of where is the permission for this disclosure coming from, who authorizes it, is difficult to address. Reproductive medicine has done so much to create families in need. Does this kind of issue hurt 
the advancement of the field, similar to a 33-year-old single mother of six with twins who has implanted eight embryos. I'm not making a direct analogy, but it seems that both incidences are on the edge of what doctors consider acceptable practices in reproductive medicine, and I may be wrong and certainly correct me. Well, there's been some experience with the more typical scenario where a grieving wife, grieving widow, chooses to pursue the semen collection. And in that setting, the availability of the semen collection seems to help the widow through the grieving process. So many of those collected specimens are never used, but in the face of a traumatic accidental death, it allows some closure so that the widow can work through their grief, knowing that they have the potential or possibility to pursue reproduction with their deceased spouse. So I think it does provide some benefit, not in the fact that children may be born from the process, but that during the time of grief, it it provides some solace to the widow. So you see that this might be an example of doctors having an added responsibility to protect the vulnerable part of our society that are dealing with issues of procreation. Well, vulnerability can be a slippery slope because for many centuries, any woman was considered vulnerable regardless of their mental or physical state. And now in recent decades, we've focused on individual autonomy and emphasized that and really thought long and hard about playing the vulnerability card, which might lead to resurgence of paternalism and suppression of autonomous decision-making regarding this. Are you concerned that this might lead to another political issue on the rights of the unborn? Certainly in the circumstance where a couple has gone through in vitro fertilization and they have uh, embryos frozen, there's certainly been cases where even both parents have passed away and the embryos remain frozen, and that's a very controversial issue, what, what should be done with the embryos. Some believe since the intended parents have passed away, their efforts at procreation should also cease with their passing away. Many IVF programs have provisions in their consent forms that patients can choose that option, that if they both pass away, that the embryos would be discarded and not used to produce children. But certainly there are individuals and organizations in society that believe that every frozen embryo should have the opportunity to become a child, regardless of the circumstances of their parentage. Well, I'd like to thank our guest from the University of Texas Health Science Center, Dr. Robert Brisky, and we've been discussing the ethics of posthumous sperm collection Thank you very much for being our guest this week. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. Reach MD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Women's and Men's Health. 